welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. And as we get started today, as always, a quick word from our sponsor at QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out Read for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash A-P-P-S. You know, one of the tougher things to do with the podcast itself is to kind of balance the the clinical and kind of like the, the practice-based topics for the pod. Um, I love getting emails and DMs with topic or guest suggestions, um, but sometimes it feels like they aren't necessarily like a full episode or it's something that, you know, we might be able to, to answer in a question or two. So... We got new initiatives left and right here. Based on on some of that stuff, I've kind of been thinking, and we're going to try something a little a little new, a little fun. I think we're going to start a, a mailbag here. Um, now, this certainly won't be for clinical questions in the beginning. This will be more focused on like practice based or more kind of like the professional questions, like you know, precepting, interviewing, addressing career challenges, reflections, work life balance, or lack thereof, etc. Now. This is actually probably one section that I may be able to have some advice for the friends of the pod, but um, I know there's probably plenty of questions that I will have zero or very little experience with, and that's when we might be able to, uh, um, in the words of who wants to be a millionaire, phone a friend, um, get some some help to answer those questions that might be over my head. So send me an email, pharmacytodose at gmail.com, and we will certainly start answering some listener-submitted questions here soon. I think that might be a a fun way to kind of close out our podcast episodes. Now, we're in for a treat today, ladies and gentlemen, because I'm so lucky to be talking with Depali Dixit about hypertensive crises. We're going to cover hypertensive urgency, emergency, talk about the drugs, so much more. Now, Depali is currently a clinical associate professor at the Ernest Mario School of Pharmacy at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, and is a MICU clinical specialist at the Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital in New Jersey. And she is also here to promote the fourth annual multidisciplinary tri-state critical care virtual symposium, which takes place this Thursday February 25th, this 2021, um, from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Now, Dipali, good afternoon. How are you doing on this uh, snowy Friday? I'm doing great, Nick. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. You know, I was going to complain about the snow, but I'm talking to you on the East Coast. How much have you all gotten in this in this wave that's come through? Oh my God. So we talk cumulative numbers or just how much we got yesterday? Oh, that's so a great question. I, <laughs> <laughs> so yesterday we've gotten about 10 inches. And of course we've had like two weeks of snow. So back then we got like 22 inches. So it's just piling on Nick. I cannot wait until um, spring here. So. How, how do you do this every winter? Oh my God. Actually, thanks to my husband. <laughs> thank God for his snowblower and all the shoveling that he does because I just sit inside and I watch him do all the work. So I, I, I really don't do anything. Uh, I, I really thank him for taking care of all of this stuff. No, you're, you're there for moral and emotional support. <laughs> I'm guessing you do a whole lot more than I nothing do. here. <laughs> I, I do. I go out there and say, do you need coffee? Do you need water? Do you need anything? So I'm his little helper. That's exactly right. Now, <laughs> before we get into it today, let's tell the listeners a little bit about the the Tri-State Critical Care Virtual Symposium, because I'm looking at kind of like the schedule or the flyer, and I'm getting excited here just kind of looking at it. Yeah, Nick, we are super excited. This is our fourth annual multidisciplinary critical care conference. We have some excellent speakers that are lined up, and they're really renowned speakers. So, for example, we have Sandra Kane. She will be speaking to us um, on uh, nephrotoxins and stewardship related to uh, 
toxicity related to drugs, that we have Sasha Gretchen, who will be talking to us about vasopressors and sepsis and other things. And uh, we have Brenda Pond, who's going to be speaking to us, as well as we have a ID speaker who is going to be discussing rapid diagnostics in the ICU. So yeah, we are really excited and hope some of you can join us um, this Thursday at 8 o'clock on February 26th. You're absolutely right. Those are some heavy hitters there. Now, is there is there going to be any way to is it is this symposium something where you have to participate in the moment, or is it something that you could purchase it on demand um, at a later time? So we are going to be recording the conference. Uh, we just have to figure out how we're going to do this, but that's definitely an option. And I'll probably end up posting something on the PRN, um, you know, as we figure out what we're going to end up doing. So yeah, there's definitely going to be an option. And and a link to this will be included in the in the episode description for the listeners, as well as the, our Twitter yeah. page at Pharmacy to Dose To To Dose. So. Um, Hopefully everyone um, looks and we're able to get some folks registered because that looks like an absolute great day. And certainly um, looks like from your perspective, great work in terms of topics and um, a wide variety of involvement, um, multidisciplinary is always great. So just hitting all the, all the great things for virtual symposiums and conferences. So awesome work. Yep. That's our goal. That's our goal. Hopefully, uh, I'll see some of you guys on Thursday. <laughs> so we've got so much to cover. I feel like we just need to dive right in. And I, I think a, a perfect starting place is that all of us have encountered a patient whose systolic blood pressure was 190s or even in the 200s, 210s that didn't necessarily um, require prompt or even urgent treatment. No one was very excited about these elevated blood pressures, but there's other circumstances where we're dropping everything and running to get the antihypertensive. So in these scenarios, how do we diagnose hypertensive crises? And I think specifically differentiating between urgency and emergency. Great question, Nick. So I'm just going to step back a little bit and I just want to share that I think a key part of initial evaluation includes conducting a thorough history, assessment of signs and symptoms, along with, you know, doing a bunch of diagnostic testing if need be. Uh, generally speaking, I think hypertensive emergency is typically defined where systolic of greater than 180 and or diastolic of 120 millimeter mercury associated with evidence of new or worsening end organ damage. In contrast, we have hypertensive emergency where patients experience similar elevated blood pressure, but they have no signs and symptoms suggesting acute end organ damage. So that's how I differentiate, and I'm sure everybody else does too. Now, I like that you you highlighted the things that we do before we get to treatment. And in previous episodes, we've talked about like repeating labs to confirm various diagnoses, right? One of the things you always tell people is mm -hmm. if you if you get a lab you don't believe, the first thing you do is repeat it. So is there guidance for repeating blood pressure assessments to help ensure this wasn't like a false elevation or reading? Absolutely. I'm not sure if there's any specific guidance because I, I would say generally speaking with hypertensive crisis, we have very limited direction in terms of guidance from guidelines. But I think it's common sense, and I think it's super important to stress that as part of the physical exam, blood pressure must be measured in both arms using appropriate techniques and validated devices, and the blood pressure readings must be reproducible on multiple measurements. So, yes, it's, it's, it's a very important point to stress here. So a big differentiating factor between these two is obviously the presence of end organ damage. But in practice, I think sometimes identifying some of these can be more challenging than we think. So what are some signs and symptoms or maybe even clues to some of our common end organ manifestations in hypertensive emergencies? Yeah, sure. So the clinical presentation can really vary and is mainly determined by the organs that are acutely affected. And I think most commonly are, you know, the brains, the heart, and the kidneys. So starting with the top, I think with neuro, you know, patients usually come in, complain about headaches, visual disturbances, 
Um, if a family member is with them, they'll tell them that there's a change in mental status, perhaps even focal motor deficits in speech. Uh, when we think about the cardio um, examination, you know, patients generally complain about chest or back pain. Um, specifically, if we're thinking about um, someone saying that I have the most worse ripping, tearing chest pain radiating to the back, that may clue the clinician into that perhaps there's an aortic dissection, and that would lead us to do further testing. Patients also complain about shortness of breath or sophia. When we look at or do a physical exam, if we see an elevated JVP, certainly that will give us a clue as well. Some patients will have nausea, vomiting, and, you know, if we talk to the patients, some of them may also share with us that there's been a change in urine color, whether it's hematuria or perhaps even a reduction in urine volume. So those are probably like the most common signs and symptoms that we see in our EG. Yeah, and, and a lot of them are, are fairly nonspecific, some of the things you yeah. you mentioned. Absolutely, yeah. That's why I think a thorough history and really talking to your patient about what's going on is, 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 is up the essence. So what are the most common causes of our hypertensive crises? Great question. So actually, several studies have looked at this, and what they found was that patients presenting with pre-existing hypertension and are on two or more medications, um, you know, were really non adherence is really the strongest predictor of hypertensive crisis. So I would say that's probably the first and the foremost important one. Other common precipitating factors can certainly include things like lifestyle changes, dietary, sodium infection. I'm definitely guilty of that. Um, use of illicit drugs such as, you know, amphetamine, cocaine. Although I will add that these substances uh, usually don't cause it, uh, usually cause an excuse rather than a chronic hypertension. And then the other things are probably concomitant use of blood pressure medications such as NSAIDs, steroids, immunosuppressants, um, over-the-counter stimulant diet pills. Um, I would also add, and this is something that I've seen in the ICU several times, is withdrawal syndrome. So whether it's alcohol, abrupt cessation of clonidine, or beta blockers, you should always be mindful of those. And specifically, like condition-wise, certainly pregnancy, spinal cord injury, sleep apnea is another big one that is usually not highlighted, but that's a, that's a big um, cause of hypertension. And Nick, I would also add among patients that are hospitalized, you should not overlook things like fluid overload, overload, um, withholding, um, antihypertensives, or perhaps even the SSRIs. We also need to carefully, you know, inquire about the patient's pain and urinary retention, because these are all, in my mind, common causes of hypertension. So I think these all need to be carefully evaluated before we think about treatment. And so it's really just adding to the pile of evidence that a, a thorough evaluation and history is so key when you're really working up the, the patient, you're trying to figure out if, there's a, if this is a true hypertensive emergency or not. Absolutely, absolutely. And I've seen this many times in the ICU. So we'll start with our our less severe um, kind of emergency here, talking about our hypertensive urgency. And in this setting where there's no evidence of end organ damage, do we have an acute blood pressure goal? Actually, not really. So the recommendation is really to, you know, have a conservative approach. In fact, um, the 2017 ACC guidelines, like I said, do not recommend a target blood pressure goal. And they basically go on to say or recommend that we should lower blood pressure slowly during the first 24 to 48 hours using oral medication. So why do we preferentially use our oral medications here? Is giving IV really ever appropriate in the setting of hypertensive urgency? In my mind, I don't think so. And there was a really nice paper that was published in New England, and I was reading that in preparation for this, and they actually did the same thing, that we really should stay away from using IV antihypertensives in patients that are coming in with hypertensive urgency. So my answer would be no. And I think it's just because we don't need to lower blood pressure so quickly. So I think PL is preferred for that reason. Mm. 
So obviously, if we're thinking of like our oral antihypertensives, the list of, of possible options are obviously numerous here. But what would maybe be some of our, our preferred agents for kind of the acute management of the hypertensive urgency? So, you know, again, the guidelines don't give us a whole lot of direction of uh, using one agent over another. Uh, my approach would be really to uh, reinitiate whatever the home regimen the patient was on, or perhaps even adjust the dose of titrated if you need to. And if they're not, then, you know, I like levetalol. It has a nice quick onset of action. We can certainly consider Capsipril. It has a, uh, you know, nice onset of action as well. Nitroglycerin is another one. Um, I do want to add, and if you don't mind, I'd like to share, like, before we even resort to using PO antihypertensive for urgency, mm -hmm. I just want to quickly share there was a study that was conducted recently, and it was a fairly large study where there were about 500 patients that presented to an ED with severe hypertension. And the blood pressure fell to less than 180 over 110 after 30 minutes of just quiet rest. So, you know, I feel like maybe they're just worked up about one thing or another and they just need to chill out. And this is what exactly what the study said. One third of the patients just required quiet time, control of the anxiety, and you know, they're just fine. So maybe we need to do this before we even resort to our PO option. I just thought it was very interesting. That is very interesting. I think that's that's <laughs> a little more evidence that all of us are a little stressed <laughs> right now with everything happening. <laughs> so, so, Absolutely. Sometimes the best med is no med at all. No. Um, oh, yeah. And and I'm a firm believer in that. I'm always about less is more. Yes, that's exactly right. I think as pharmacists, a lot of us always push for 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 medications and prescribing them, but sometimes deprescribing or holding things and just waiting is sometimes uh, a better strategy. Yep. Um, okay. And so the other thing I like to highlight too is you mentioned the the thorough history and kind of non-compliance being one of the biggest causes. And once you identify that it's non-compliance, that avoids us up titrating home meds and then bottoming out blood pressures later. So um, figuring out why they're coming in is also just as important. Mm -hmm. So kind of transitioning yep. more to the to our ICU um, kind of patients, which is kind of our hypertensive emergency. So you mentioned an urgency that the guidelines don't necessarily give us a a hard, firm kind of acute blood pressure goal. What about for hypertensive emergencies? What What's our initial blood pressure goal here? Yeah, great question. So um, patients with, say, either brain or heart or kidney-related uh, complications, um, I would say that patients that have stroke, whether it's hemorrhagic or um, ischemic stroke, patients with aortic dissection, MI, renal, complication of preeclampsia would definitely be admitted to the ICU. And I think the blood pressure would definitely uh, depend on the target organ damage. Wait, so you're telling me that for both of these things we're talking about today, there's not a one simple goal. It's all nope. going to be patient specific here. Absolutely. <laughs> and, depend on, and it would depend on the target organ damage. Yes, for sure. And we have to be very mindful of that. So, so, it can impact patient outcomes. Yeah. so why do we have a different initial blood pressure goal compared to our kind of final ultimate blood pressure goal? Because, you know, we're having end organ damage here. Don't we want our patients to kind of reach that blood pressure goal fairly quickly? Yeah. And honestly, in clinical practice, that's exactly what happens. <laughs> and it's not always right. <laughs> and I say that because I've seen it many times. Mm -hmm. So um, my answer would be that, so in the absence of studies comparing different rates of blood pressure reduction, management is really guided by auto-regulatory principles. So this general recommendation of 25% reduction in MAP during the first hours is just targeted to maintain the cerebral perfusion and really not to precipitate ischemia. So I think the idea is just 
Let's not drop the blood pressure too quickly to cause hypoperfusion of the organs that have compensated for the elevated blood pressure that's been ongoing. Yeah, the the CPP autoregulation curve. If if you haven't seen it, you just haven't been <laughs> rotating through the ICU yet. I promise you will. It's one of I, it's one of our favorite things to draw. I think. Well, and probably one of the few uh, things that a lot of us can draw. Absolutely, and I, you know, I always get my pharmacy residents to get to know that equation very well because <laughs> we see a lot of these cases in the unit. So oh, yeah. I think it's an important concept. Um, so. We mentioned that a lot of times really our acute blood pressure goal is really going to be driven by that end organ damage that's happening. Mm -hmm. So in terms of like prospective studies, we know ultimately that we don't want to reduce it too quick, but is there any studies showing us like what, how in our, in our initial goal, you know, maybe how quickly we should try to reduce it to prevent that auto regulation curve from um, going towards the ischemic route? Yeah, so, you know, there are some exceptions to the acute blood pressure goal. So, you know, the recommended pace and intensity of blood pressure reduction would really depend, again, on the presence of certain conditions such as the ischemic stroke, hemorrhagic stroke, aortic dissection, eclampsia, all of which really need a more aggressive blood pressure control and that's really to limit the ongoing injury. So I would say those are the exceptions. Now, when we're using vasoactives to treat, if we're thinking, you know, because when patients are hypotensive, you know, they're in septic shock, for example, you know, generally we'll have MAP goals, right? MAP greater than 65, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. But... A yeah. lot of us are familiar with those patients who have, you know, for example, very low diastolic numbers. And so sometimes we switch and we'll have systolic blood pressure goals instead. So yeah. a lot of, of the literature you'll read will focus on like your, like a systolic blood pressure reduction per se, or, or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Do we ever mm -hmm. switch between systolic and MAP when we're thinking about treating hypertensive emergencies? Yeah, sure. We do. Um, Although I will say in our IC, we, like you said earlier, we generally use the systolic blood pressure, but, you know, if we have the A-line in, we can definitely, you know, carefully use the map too. But I think, generally speaking, the practice is to use systolic, but certainly you can use map as well. Is that what you guys do too? We generally use the systolic blood pressure. You're yeah. exactly right. And it's then, right. you know, for maybe strange scenarios i'm trying to think of a scenario where we would we would preferentially switch to the map but generally speaking we do the systolic blood pressure yeah you're absolutely right uh -huh. yeah i think i've heard some of my colleagues do use math but um i think the widespread practice is to just it. i think part of it is is that sometimes we have a hard time just getting our initial blood pressure goal with systolic i think adding mm -hmm. in a map and adding one more thing of math sets us up for a little bit of failure possibly True. Yeah. That's a great point. That's a great point. So our treatment options for hypertensive emergency um, focus on the use of IV antihypertensives. And and obviously our two most common routes of administration are the IV push and an IV continuous infusion. So before we necessarily get into the individual agents themselves, when we're just thinking about the routes of, of administration, what are maybe pros and cons of the two? Because I know down in the ED, um, a lot of our EM pharmacists are pushing for one med or another. And, and why, may, why might that be? Well, I think from an operational standpoint, IV push is easily accessible since the vials are readily available in the picture for us. Um, I, I also think that IV push, depending on the agent, is probably not as titratable and probably more taxing on the nurses as well. Um, whereas the continuous infusions, we all know, um, you know, depending on the drugs, generally have a quick onset of action. They're generally more titratable. And I would definitely say that the con may be, again, depending on the agents we're using, may um, have a long half-life, for example, labetalol. And mm -hmm. some continuous infusions do indeed come in with a large volume load. So that's definitely a constant need, especially if your patient is already volume overloaded for whatever reason. So. 
I think that's going to be a common theme when we're talking about hypertensive emergencies, that it's going to be a lot of patient-specific decisions that come into your treatment plan. And so thinking about all the, the, the nuances and all the, you know, the patient's past medical history, their IV access, all those things can kind of play a part. You're absolutely right. Oh, yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yep. So if, if you start with IV push medications, at what point do you typically in your practice say, okay, we've kind of failed our push. We've, we've failed the, the PRN labetalol or hydralazine IV pushes. And when we might move to like a continuous infusion. So when I think of IV pushes, my go-to drug is labetalol. I usually avoid hydralazine or metoprolol because I'm just not a big fan because of the unpredictable nature of those drugs, specifically hydrolysine. So labetalol is my go-to. So I usually end up, you know, initiating intermethyl doses of 20 to 80 milligrams at 10-minute interval and continue until, you know, we've maxed out of like a cumulative of 300 milligrams. So, for example, with labetalol. Um, and it, even if at that point we have not reached a desired response, then I would continue or think about using a continuous infusion. Um, one of my pet peeves in, and a big teaching point for my providers is that they'll give a dose of labetalol and say, oh, treatment failure, we need to use infusion. And that's when I have to like step in and say, listen, can we try additional doses and see if it works before we, you know, subject the patient to a continuous infusion and all the other things that go along with it. So, I mean, certainly we need to be mindful of, you know, the hypertension and the bradycardia, specifically, specifically with labetalol, but um, that's usually my approach. Yeah, and I, I like that you highlighted that the, the doses for the PR and labetalol here in this scenario are probably going to be mm -hmm. bigger than doses that a lot of providers are using in other scenarios. So you're exactly oh, right. Yeah. When you, when you got a, when, when they got five or 10 milligrams IV and then they didn't respond, <laughs> I don't think mm -hmm. they failed. I think we, it's, we just need to bump that dose up a little bit. Yeah. Oh my God. And this is something I, I feel like I think about all the time, you know, treatment day. I'm like, well, what's the dose? How much did you use? Mm -hmm. Oh, we use five milligrams. And so, yeah, that's, like I said, that's, that's certainly my approach. And like, it's a huge teaching point for me. Absolutely. And then, you know, and there might be patients where you're going to feel more comfortable rather than risking that big precipitous drop from a big bolus. You might be more comfortable with trying to start an infusion and see where you go there. So kind of, it, mm -hmm. it's going to be a lot of, of patient specific decisions here. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're going to kind of dive into talking about some of the specific medications here. And obviously we're going to, we're going to highlight some of the pearls, you know, maybe how they work, time to onset, et cetera. But I think rather than going through these medications in a list where it feels like we're hitting PowerPoint slides on each one, I think what might be kind of helpful is to discuss the end organ damage that's common with hypertensive emergencies. And then we can kind of talk about some of those specific medications in the context of treatment. How does that sound? Sounds fabulous. I think it's great. I like that. So we'll start with probably what I would consider my scariest end organ damage that always makes me clench up. Definitely. In Everybody's the scariest. Section. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Everybody's afraid of that one. Now, Specifically, the aortic dissection has a very unique um, treatment goal that is um, out of kind of character of every other hypertensive emergency, you'd kind of argue. So what's our blood pressure goal here? And then what kind of agents are we generally using for our initial treatment? So the general goal is to reduce the blood pressure to a goal of less than 120 in the first hour or within 20 minutes. And the heart rate to be less than 60. And so obviously pretty, pretty aggressive blood pressure and heart rate lowering goals compared to others where we're, you know, we're focusing on um, bringing mm -hmm. down percent blood pressure decreases and things like that. So we're, yeah. we're a lot more yep. aggressive here. Absolutely. And, and, and it's really because, you know, in these patients, the goal is to reduce the pulsatile load and the aortic stress. And this is accomplished by using agents that decrease contractility, blood pressure, and venous return. 
So the idea is that we initiate blood blo- beta blockers uh, therapy first. Um, that would include either the use of esmolol or labetalol. And uh, the reason we want to initiate beta blocker first is that we want to initiate um, before we initiate other therapies such as your vasodilators like nicotine or nitroside as vasodilators because we get the reflux tachycardia and we don't want that. Mm-hmm. So once the patient is initiated on beta blocker and the blood pressure control is still warranted, then we would go on to add the alternative agents, um, you know, and then we can address that. But first, for me, and I believe the guidelines also recommend a KBCA data process. Mm-hmm. Now, in your practice, do you find that these patients typically get managed with just a beta blocker, or do they typically need multiple agents to reach those goals? You know, I see the variation. It, it, it depends. But I, I think... Mostly, it's combination. Mm-hmm. Now, I I would say you know the 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 preferred agents that according to the guidelines kind of say esmolol plus a vasodilator, whether that's nicotine, yep. mm-hmm. nitroprusside, nitroglycerin. So, what what is what's your kind of workhorse in terms of like a the IV vasodilator antihypertensive? So we, we go with the mycartopene, that's our vasodilator, and then, of course, the esmolol is our go-to data blocker. So what are some, what are kind of some highlights with our use of esmolol, kind of some considerations when using it in these, in, in these patients with dissections, or really just using it in, in hypertensive emergencies in general? Yeah, sure. So I actually am a big fan of es- Esmolol, um, and, and primarily because, I mean, we all know that it's a selective beta-1 blocker, and I like it because I love drugs that have a quick onset and quick offset, mm-hmm. which Esmolol does. So, you know, rapid onset, meaning, you know, one to two minutes will see the effect, and once you turn it off, you know, the effect will go away within 10 to 20 minutes as well. Um, I think we want to avoid it in patients that have decompensated heart failure, bradycardia, or um, heart block, and perhaps even patients that are coming in with acute exacerbation of asthma or COPD. Uh, the one concern is that it can come with a, a large volume overload, um, especially over time we're going to use it. Um, what else? Um, another nice thing about esmolol to me is that in terms of metabolism, which is really organ mm-hmm. independent, at, as it's metabolized to the or hydrolyzed to the excavations in blood, um, so that's really nice. So we don't have to worry about you know liver or renal failure, which is usually what we see in our ICU patients. Um, and you, you, recently, there's been a lot of literature supporting esmolol's use um, in tachyarrhythmias as well. So um, yeah, those are some of the uh, you know great attributes about Esmolol. So we're big fans of Esmolol. <laughs> Absolutely. You, you hit two of my favorite things about it is that, you know, it is fast on fast off. And so we're able to mm-hmm. kind of rapidly up titrate, but I also mm-hmm. love the medications that have the unique metabolism or things, you know, like Esmolol and Cisetricurum are two that come directly to mind yeah. and things that I love always asking learners about, about the mechanism. So I always think those are fascinating. Um, yeah. Now for your perspective, if, if someone kind of proposed to you doing esmolol plus nicardipine versus labetalol as monotherapy, if you could meet your goals with them, obviously, would you have a preference for one of those regimens versus the other? You know, I would probably prefer Esmolol over Labetalol only because, like I said, like the onset of action works fairly quickly. So that would be my preference to go with the Esmolol and then the Cartagena. Okay. So most of our discussion here at this point has kind of been about acutely lowering our blood pressure. Makes sense. We're talking mm-hmm. about hypertensive emergencies, right? But that's not always the case especially for our next end organ damage, which would be acute ischemic stroke. Now, obviously our treatment goals will depend whether thrombolytic therapy is given or not. Did they go for thrombectomy, et cetera? But let's, we'll kind of take the thrombectomy for a second and we'll just kind of say if patients got TPA for their, or fiber, you know, thrombolysis for their ischemic stroke or not, what is our unique 
blood pressure goal for patients who come in with an acute ischemic stroke? Yeah, so patients that are eligible to receive um, thrombolytic therapy, the blood pressure goal is less than 185 over 110 millimeter mercury prior to giving TPA, as you mentioned. And that's really to reduce the risk of bleeding. Um, and once they've received it, then our blood pressure goal is less than 180 over 105 for the next 24 hours. So why, why, why do we not want to really bring our blood pressure down? Because basically our goal is almost similar to our diagnosis, a little bit different of our diastolic there. Um, but why are we keeping it there? Again, it has to go back to the cerebral perfusion. We want to, you know, protect the cerebral perfusion. We want to protect the penumbra. That's like the biggest, the most important thing in our genius filtration. So it's, it's really to prevent additional damage and, you know, prevent additional ischemic issues. So that's primarily what drives, um, you know, not dropping it too much. So the most common agents here, if you have to kind of reduce your blood pressure, if say they're, you know, in the 200s, a lot of times we may be using labetalol or nicardipine or even like mm -hmm. one of our newer agents, clavidipine. But if you've ever opened up a note from like a, like a neurology consult for these stroke patients or a lot of the stroke order sets, I feel like it's in type 20 bolded underline that says avoid the use of hydralazine. So and you even mentioned that, that, that you preferentially use labetalol in, in, in other circumstances. So why is that? Why do we, and especially with acute ischemic stroke and, and even other disease states, why, why are we avoiding, um, you know, widespread use of hydralazine? Oh, I wish we were avoiding as widespread as we should be because <laughs> we really are. <laughs> because some of our physicians still love the hydralazine. For me, and I would for other fundies as well, I think it's the unpredictability of response and the duration of actions that don't make this agent a preferred agent in most of our patients. Um, Hydrazine can also lead to prolonged hypertension and, you know, it's just not a great drug and it can, you know, lead to increase in ICCs, reflux tachycardia, and, you know, we have so many other better options than hydrazine, so... I would definitely resort to those before uh, using hydrazine. And again, this is another huge teaching point for our providers is to let's just stay away from hydrazine unless there's a dire shortage of other antihypertensives. So, yeah, this is a safe space for for us to bad talk hydrazine. It's one of my least favorite <laughs> drugs, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, because of that, and and you'll yeah. when, when when you'll talk to some providers, you know, a lot of times people will use practice based evidence to support their use of it. Like they'll say, mm -hmm. "Well, we used it in two other patients and it was fine," and but it's fine. unpredictable, oh, yeah. right? So we don't exactly. know what's going to happen, and it might be fine, I, right? <laughs> I know. Oh my god, Mike, it's just an ongoing battle. But yes, so hopefully of, after they hear our podcast, they won't use it. I'm just kidding. That's exactly right. We have a list of we have a list of meds that this podcast is is against, and um, hydralazine is added to the list along with abnormal cool. saline, carifene, and fluoroquinolones. Like Excellent. Good. I'm, I'm I'm on board with all of them. <laughs> See the RMDs. Yeah. You know, there's consensus of which ones to use and which ones not to use. Yes. And, and, and can I just add one other thing? Just going back to when we were talking about our ischemic stroke patients, I know we talked yes. about uh, blood pressure goals specifically for uh, patients that are eligible to receive TPA. But I do want to yes. add that patients that are outside the window, um, really, our goal is to um, have permissible hypertension. And uh, again, it's really because of the same reasons that we mentioned earlier to for the cerebral perfusion, and we don't need to lower blood pressure unless the systolic is greater than 220 and our diastolic is greater than 120. Um, I just wanted to, you know, add that as well. Well, I like that because the highlight there is that most of those patients are going to receive zero treatment. 
most people mm-hmm, are mm-hmm. are probably under under that 220 category there so i think that's a really good point especially because yeah, that number yeah. it's going to alarm and be a red alert no matter what health system or hospital you're in and inherently oh, you might think you want to treat it oh yeah yeah so when we get a rotation in our unit we always tell the resident right off the bat Let's not treat it. Like if they haven't gotten CPA, and then we explain them, you know, the reasons behind it. So, very important thing. So let's stay in the head here a little bit, and we'll transition to another category of strokes, which would be, you know, kind of the opposite of an ischemic stroke, the hemorrhagic strokes. Or in this context, I think we'll we'll kind of specifically broadly characterize them as, you know, intracranial hemorrhage. Um, mm-hmm. Now, the preferred agents here are the same agents as you would kind of use for that acute ischemic stroke. Now, the agent that I'm most used to using in these patients is kind of what you highlighted earlier, was the vasodilator nicardipine. Mm-hmm. So is that is that your all's kind of continuous IV antihypertensive workhorse? Oh, yeah. All the time. All the time. I neurologists love. And I think I, I like nicardipine, too. It has some good, um, you know, attributes. Definitely are those. What are some What are some things that that stand out to you that make it um, a preferred agent in, especially in this setting? So again, you know, it has a fairly quick onset of action. So you know, five to ten minutes. The duration is a little bit longer than I would like it to be. So the duration is about two to six hours. We titrate it every ten to fifteen minutes. But I think the other thing, in specifically in our neuro patients. Um, is that nicardipine has unique benefits in the cerebrovascular disease based on its pharmacologic profile. So, you know, it's, it's nice. It's a vasodilator in, in the cerebral uh, smooth muscles. So that's something unique about it. Um, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why our neurologists like to use nicardipine. Yeah, absolutely. And and I feel like too, when we think about the safety aspect of nicardipine, in terms of side effects, I feel like it 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 doesn't have no. a whole lot of things. It definitely comes with the risk of fluid overload like Esmolol did. Absolutely. Yep. Aside from that, the you know, the reflex tachycardia, and I guess we should be mindful and avoid it in patients that have advanced aortic stenosis. And like you mentioned, like the fluid overload. But other than that, you know, pretty benign. So uh, another kind of vasodilator or, or a calcium channel blocker is clavidipine. It's kind of one of our fairly new, fairly new as in I think it's, you know, the 2010s, um, a little later after 2000. So how does that differ from nicardipine? And then maybe what are some barriers to widespread use of clavidipine? Because I don't know about if, if, if you use it or if it's on formulary, but it's not an agent at my hospital or, or anything that I've routinely used before. Yeah, I personally don't have any experience using it either. But from what I've read and what my other colleagues have told me, I think it appears to be favorable for the most part. Um, you know, I, I think the safety concerns uh, may be related to the fact that it is a lipid emulsion and it could be like a lookalike drug concerns and the triglyceride elevation similar to a propofol, uh, perhaps even some concerns for the patients that are allergic to soy or, or eggs. Um, I, I think those are the only concerning things, but I think generally speaking, it seems like a nice drug. Um, and I think what I like about it is it has, again, a quick onset of action. Mm-hmm. So like one to four minutes, duration is, you know, five to 15 minutes. And I think similar to you, Esmolol also goes through the uh, rapid extrahydrolysis. So we don't need to worry about clearance in our renally impaired or the hepatic impaired patients. So I don't know, we might consider adding it sometime in the future if the price comes down. But I think the biggest barrier probably the cost for us like every medication that's on that's not on formulary it's generally cost and that's exactly right because i actually think there's a lot of patients that would benefit from the use of it because it's it's less volume load so that patient that's got heart failure ckd they can Mm -hmm. they can escalate and get fluid overloaded pretty quickly especially when you think these patients may be on esmolol and nicardipine for for a period of time 100 percent Yep, I agree. 
So one of the cornerstones of kind of like our next end organ damage would be acute coronary syndrome. And, and one of the cornerstones of treatment there is beta blockers. And you know, in the context of hypertension emergencies, that there's certainly no exception. Um, mm -hmm. Now, the preferred agents here in ACS are, are nitrates like IV nitroglycerin and beta blockers. So um, let's, let's delve in. We like to dispel myths or, you know, promote the truth here. So a lot of times in, in patients who come in with ACS, right, and, and we get a UDS or we have concern or know that they might have used cocaine, a lot of us were taught or learned, hey, if, if someone used cocaine, you can't give them a beta blocker, you get that unopposed alpha stimulation, um, obviously, and that would create cause their blood pressure to go up, which is not what we want. So, is that, is that what we still believe in practice or are we busting some myths here to Polly? You know, like that's a great question, super controversial, and the answer would depend on who you talk to. So <laughs> my take and my provider's take is really that we use it. And, and, and it's really based on the fact that the studies have shown labetalol appears to be safe. And when I think about labetalol, you know, it has mixed beta and alpha blocking properties. So it can actually help mitigate the potential for the unopposed alpha stimulation. I know that the previous guidelines recommend against the use, but I think the more updated papers have refuted these recommendations. So I think the bottom line in my mind is that the newer evidence shows that many clinicians are using the non-selective beta blockers in this setting. So... That, that, that's how I would demystify the uh, controversy here or the myth. Hey, we're on the same team here. I completely agree oh, with good. that. Yep. Now, yeah. you, your your point is very, is correct in that you could talk to four different people and get four different answers and your specific providers may, may not believe that. So, mm -hmm. um, I, I generally, um, I, I believe in kind of practice the way, um, the way you kind of described, but I know there are providers that will push back or things. So just something to keep in mind for, for the listeners out there. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great point. It's a great question. Love it. So commonly, you know, the most common way that we give labetalol in these scenarios are, are IV push. And you mentioned, right, you start with, with 20 and we kind of rapidly escalate from there. Um, but we can also do um, labetalol IV infusions. So are there, what are some kind of considerations for us as pharmacists to keep in mind before we recommend switching from IV pushes to that infusion? Oh, okay. Another pet peeve of mine. So although people use it and it's recommended by the guidelines, personally, Nick, I'm not a fan of labetalol infusions. And here's the reason why. It's, it, it has to do with the uh, elimination half-life, which, you know, over time, labetalol can accumulate and the half-life can be as close to like six hours. And certainly it can potentially cause hypotension in bradycardia. So I think we just need to Keep in mind the uh, pharmacokinetics of uh, labetalol. Yeah, Do you guys use it often? I, I try to push back against labetalol infusions for that exact reason because it almost feels yeah. like you you build up, you build up, you mm -hmm. finally meet your goal, and you're fine for a few hours, and then boom, you start plummeting, you hold the drip, yep. the half-life's long. So I'll, I'll always try to make the argument rather than doing labetalol infusions to try to switch to esmolol, and then if we have to do something on top of that, maybe nicardipine or I'm something from you. there. Yep, I think pharmacists just think alike. I, yes. Well, I think I think especially too that all of us have probably been burned with similar things and 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 that's, that's true. And that is definitely contributing, I'm guessing. Absolutely. Yep. Um so acute decompensated heart failure is kind of another cardiac end organ manifestation of those hypertensive emergencies. We're gonna stay in the heart here. And our workhorses of management here are our nitrates or specifically our vasodilators. So let's go more into detail with our IV nitrates and kind of highlight our use of IV nitroglycerin here and then kind of talk about maybe nipride or sodium nitroprusside. Yeah, sure. So 
our ED folks love nitroglycerin. Super mm-hmm. popular. Often used. <laughs> um, I think it's a good drug if it's used appropriately. So, you know, it has mixed venous and arterial vasodilator, predominantly with venous effects. Um, and again, I like the fact that it has a rapid onset and offset. Um, I think the downside or what may hold people, hold back folks using it, um, or consider other medication is a tachyphylaxis that can occur rapidly, um, which requires those titrations. And I think I've, I've actually seen this firsthand where patients actually complain about the headaches and the flushing. And that's really mm-hmm. the, the most, um, common side effects that I've seen in, in my experience. Um, I would also add with nitroglycerin, the caveat is that you want to make sure that your patient isn't concurrently on any like phosphodiesterase inhibitors as a combination of two can lead to profound reductions in blood pressure. And I would avoid it in patients that come in, uh, you know, hypovolemic. But other than that, I think it works nicely short term. And it's a very popular drug, like I said, in our emergency room. Do you guys use it in your ED as well? Oh, yes. My new job has me in the ED a whole lot more, and you're exactly right. That's uh, that's probably on the ED Mount Rushmore, the nitroglycerin, yeah. if you just say that drug itself from all the different ways they do it. Um, and then you even talk about, you know, the flash pulmonary edema and the high dose um, and all uh-huh. of those things. But you're right. To me, in these scenarios, especially if you're using this for longer-term therapy, the side effects – for the patients when you're using those doses to actually get the effect sometimes can really limit the effectiveness yeah. of that therapy. Yep. And so what about kind of our more potent agent kind of our, our CT surgery folks ears are starting to perk up now with sodium nitroprusside here. I honestly, again, don't have much experience using nitroprusside, although the few times that I've used it, it's worked beautiful. Mm-hmm. I personally think it's underutilized, and I think one of the reasons may be the cost that's associated with it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some of the things to point out about nitroprusside is that it reduces preload, afterload, and also has pulmonary vascular suppressor reduction properties. It works, like I said, fairly rapidly. Uh, the desirable duration is, is there as well. Um, I think some of the concerns and maybe people are afraid to using it is, is the cyanide toxicity that's been talked about. Uh-huh. But honestly, I don't know how many case reports we've read where this actually happens. I mean, yeah, we know it can be a, a concern, but um, I, I really haven't read too many things about this. But I think generally speaking, even in patients that are renally impaired or have hepatic impairment, I think it's safe to use it in up to 24 hours or less. And we've done it, and it's been fine. Um, the other thing I would add is that if we're going to use it, that we should have continuous blood pressure monitoring, like have an A-line in place, um, just because uh, of the rapid changes um, in the blood pressure that can occur. And uh, we definitely would probably want to avoid it um, or exert caution in patients that have elevated ICP or where you think there might be a risk for developing elevated ICP and um, perhaps acute MI. Yeah, I, I think what you said is exactly in line with what I think is that I think it's a great drug. It works mm-hmm. really effectively when you need to use it. And most of the time you've used it in that patient who's maxed out on two or three agents and you just don't know what else to do. I think right. I think the the potential for side effects, whether it's the possibility of cyanide toxicity, which I've truly actually never seen like in, in an actual I know. patient. Um, Neither have I. I mean, it's a good thing we haven't, but yes. that's, what we're, that's what we all fear, right? Yes. I think it's that and then the ICP issues probably depending on, on the <laughs> scenario. Um, but yeah. And, and, you know, I know a lot of places were using it more routinely and then they really increased the price, and I think uh, most places shifted to using nicardipine, and that's what really helped, you know, helped it fall out of favor in a sense. I know that happened where I yeah. previously was practicing. We made a big shift because of that um, cost increase. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what's holding us all back. Always the cost. So the 
Would any of these, you know, when we're talking about our cardiac patients and whether it's decompensate heart failure versus ACS, would any of these benefit, would any of them benefit at all from like um, receiving like the IV ACE inhibitor, like the IV enalaprilat or what, does that have any real utility in the treatment of like a hypertensive emergency? My short answer would be only if there's nothing else available. <laughs> now, so when we are faced, when we're faced with all these things, again, it's kind of going back to the same thing, like how long it takes to work and the prolonged duration of action. And they have to talk to 24 hours. And, you know, this is not a drug that can be easily titrated. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think generally I, it's been deemed to be effective in patients with high renin levels, but they have drastic drop in blood pressure, so we need to monitor them carefully as well. But in my mind, I'm not a fan, for the reason that I just mentioned. Yeah, the the onset and duration are the two biggest things there that really, that to me always make me do a pushback on on trying to use Uh that in an acute scenario. Yeah, and again, like I said, we have so many other better options, so I would definitely go with those. So we've talked about all these these different options and how um, the end organ damage, but also patient specific factors are definitely going to play a part in which agent we choose. But is there any research like that compares either efficacy or patient outcomes if they receive one antihypertensive compared to another? I wish. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So there's really no quality randomized controlled trials that have actually evaluated different strategies for hypertensive emergency, except for, you know, in the, in your stroke patients. So treatment, I think, is really determined by an understanding of the pathophysiological features, the presence and type of target organ injury, and really the availability and cost and provider experience. Uh, but I will say that there's been a couple of small studies that have compared levetalol and lycartapine. And they basically show that there's a faster achievement of blood pressure control and less variability with blood pressure with mycartine. Um, but again, there's no significant difference in terms of adverse effects or even mortality for that matter. So when we've kind of gone out of the acute phase of um the management of hypertensive emergencies and we're starting to think of all right how are we going to transition them off of iv medications um at what point do we start trying to do that at what point is it appropriate for for us to kind of ask on rounds you know if we can start you know putting some oral meds um onto the patient's mar so I think the optimal timing for starting oral medication hasn't really been looked at and it's kind of uncertain. But, you know, having said that, the risk of hypertension we know is generally greatest in the first six hours of IV therapy. So once the patient is able to tolerate oral medications or has until access, I think a reasonable approach is to start oral medications within six to 12 hours um, and once we have achieved the blood pressure reduction goals. And, you know, this can really provide a smoother transition. It can shorten the need of IV drugs and perhaps even, you know, reduce your ICU length of stay. So, um, I mean, that's how I usually approach it. And in terms of when to stop the infusion, um, I think we can discontinue the infusion within one to two hours after the oral drug is administered. Um, however, this may be different depending on the absorption characteristics of the oral agent that's been chosen to initiate an offset of the IV drug. That's, so that's how I usually um, teach the medical residents and the pharmacy residents, and that's generally my way to go about it. But I think this is really important that we definitely consider um, you know, the transition from IV to PO Mm -hmm. So let's talk about a specific kind of special patient population here. And in our pregnant patients, the 
American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, or ACOG, you know, they define hypertensive emergency as a systolic blood pressure greater than 160, diastolic greater than 110, in the setting of preeclampsia or eclampsia. Now, we've kind of highlighted some of our treatment goals for for other end organ manifestations, but in this kind of, you know, obviously high-risk patient population, um, what are our treatment goals here? So, yes, they're, they're definitely different. And as you said, in contrast to our non-pregnant patients, the definition of severe hypertension is lower. So it's 160 over 110 versus our 180 over 120. The other thing I would add is that in this specific population, it's not necessary to have symptoms or an organ damage. So we definitely would want to reduce their blood pressure quickly. Now, do, do pregnant patients have the same treatment options um, as our non-pregnant patients? Do we have any maybe special considerations in this setting? Um. So, you know, the options include our vasodilators, such as your uh, microglycerin, like cardipine, clovidipine, and hydralazine, as well as our adrenergic blockers, um, such as your esmolol, clonidine, labetalol. But I think the most commonly ones that are used is labetalol, hydralazine, and nystatapine. And I think nystatapine is probably first line due to its evidence showing it reduces the risk of long-term hypertension actually. Mm-hmm. So those are the ones that actually our hospital um, uses for um, the specific population. Yeah. PO nifedipine, it, it is forever connected to the treatment of hypertension in pregnant patients to me. I, I think it was just mm-hmm. emphasized so much in school. That's the, you know, you have certain things that you just like remember they're ingrained. This one's tattooed yep. there for sure. <laughs> Same here. Now, your institution actually did some research looking at um, the management of hypertensive emergency. So, what were what were you all looking at, and what did you what did you find in some of your studies? So it wasn't great. Um, we did it because I just from anecdotal experience, like I've been seeing that these patients that come in with whether it's urgency or emergency, they were just treated the same. And it was always, everybody always got nitroglycerin. And that's what really piqued my interest in just, you know, going back and looking at exactly what is our blood pressure threshold and what are the agents that are being used. And um, unfortunately, you know, it wasn't, a great finding where we weren't really doing the right thing. Um, so whether it was urgency, we would reduce it very quickly. So basically we would treat the urgency and emergency similarly. So that's what we basically found. You know, I, I try to take a positive look on things and I think that, you know, it, you never like seeing that in your research that, you know, you, you feel like that your treatments aren't maybe necessarily um, how you would want to do them, but you identified it. And I'm guessing that you all are probably working on, on that. And I'm sure it's, it's at the forefront of people's minds. So I, I think this oh, is kind yeah. of a perfect example of you anecdotally kind of finding things and turning this into not only a really good research project, but a, a, you know, quality improvement project in a sense for, for, for your unit and patients. So I think that's a big kudos there. Absolutely. And in fact, you know, the ED physician that I worked with on this project was very surprised himself. <laughs> and what we actually ended up doing is we ended up doing a uh, system-wide study too. So we're still working on that part of it. But we're like, let's just look at all the EDs and see what they're all doing. So mm-hmm. more to come on that. Oh, I love that. So Depaula, you've, you've hit on tons of really great points and I love a lot of the the pearls and, and tips and tricks you've kind of um, thrown our way throughout the episode. But what would you say when we're thinking of the management of, of hypertension urgencies and emergencies? What are like some take-home points or things you want to reiterate for the listeners? Like if they remember just a few things, what would you hope those are? Well, um, I would definitely emphasize that um, the management of urgency versus emergency is different. 
So with the emergencies, we definitely want to use the IV medications um, that are guided by the type of target organ damage. And urgency, we just want to lower their blood pressure slowly using oral medications um, and not necessarily IV nitroglycerin, like what we found. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think non-adherence, like I said, is a very common um, factor why um, patients end up having uh, hypertensive crisis. So I think education uh, for our patient is really important. And, you know, trying to figure out, like, the social determinants of health. Like, why is it that this is happening? You know, why is it that the same patient ends up in the ED over and over again? So I think there's a huge role for the pharmacist. Um, with um, managing hypertensive crisis and just education for the patient as well as actually education for the providers, you know, in terms of agent selection, managing um, therapy, titration approach, the IV to CO conversion, and like I said, education for, um, you know, everybody that's involved. I completely uh, agree on all fronts there. I think that's really great advice. And, a big thank you for coming on the podcast, Apolly. I always like talking with you, and especially in this setting, you know, having so much knowledge for all the listeners here. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, for anyone looking to 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 reach out and get in touch, um, Depali is on Twitter. It's at Depali Farm D. So feel free to reach out to her and, and tell her a big thanks for for coming on the podcast here. Nick, I want to thank you for inviting me, and it was pleasure talking to you you're just fabulous i always enjoy talking with you as well and remember everybody the critical care virtual symposium the fourth annual this is their fourth time bringing it back that's how that's how great it's been and the great response so it's going to be this thursday february 25th online lots of incredible critical care content multidisciplinary tons of notable farm d's and you can even get some CE in there. So definitely register today, everybody. Dipali, thanks again. I appreciate your your time and, and um, expertise here. Thank you, Nick. It was a pleasure. And I appreciate all the friends of the pod. Remember, email pharmacy2dose, to-dose at gmail.com with any mailbag questions. Always open to feedback from you all, positive and negative, guest or topic ideas um, at Twitter, pharmacy to dose, TO to dose, or via email. Again, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. Show notes, they're in the podcast episode description as well as on the website, pharmacy to dose.com. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast. <laughs>